Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Zach Markinson. Today's guest is Professor Bruce Hoffman to talk about how America's hate has gone global. Bruce Hoffman is currently a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where he teaches classes on terrorism and counterterrorism, and he is also the director for the Center for Jewish Civilization at Georgetown. He currently serves as the Shelby Column and Catherine W. Davis Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations as well. Professor Hoffman has a uniquely long and impressive background leading research in the field of terrorism and counterterrorism. Some highlights of his career of service include that in 1994, the Director of Central Intelligence awarded Professor Hoffman the United States Intelligence Community SEAL Medallion, the highest level of commendation given to a non-government employee which recognizes sustained superior performance of high value that distinctly benefits the interests and national security of the United States. Professor Hoffman's previous publications include Inside Terrorism, which provides a thorough analysis of the evolution of terrorism and terrorist tactics, and is widely viewed as required reading for those interested in the field. Anonymous Soldiers, The Struggle for Israel, 1917 to 1947, as well as many other books and scholarly publications. His latest book that he co-authored with Jacob Ware, an SSP alumni, is called God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America, and is expected to be released in January of 2024. Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with me today, Professor Hoffman. You recently co-wrote an article in Foreign Affairs with Jacob Ware called American Hatred Goes Global, and your new book, God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America, is also about domestic extremism. What spurred your interest in writing about domestic extremism right now? That's a good question. I actually, when I began my career as an analyst 41 years ago, uh, the account that I had was, in fact, violent far-right extremism. Um, And I had spent a lot of time in the 1980s and 1990s on that subject, but then, like everyone else, after the September 11, 2001 attacks, I shifted to al-Qaeda and then subsequently to ISIS. But Jacob Ware and I got the idea to do this book in April 2020, in part because of what we saw was happening online and social media that, you know, within days of the lockdown, for instance, all kinds of vile conspiracy theories were emerging about uh, Jews and Asians and African-Americans and others who were somehow importing this disease or seeking to profit from it. It was also a time when there was increasing anti-government sentiment, especially on Facebook, where various uh, boogaloo groups, militia groups were talking about treasonous, violent activities. And I decided uh, that it would be useful to return to this subject. And of course, Jacob Ware and I have been writing about it since, uh, well, my case, certainly since, actually both of our cases, certainly since the Tree of Life synagogue attack in October 2018. 
So it just made sense to turn our attention into doing a full-length treatment that would trace the trajectory of violent far-right extremism from its more recent origins in the early 1980s and show that what was occurring today, I mean, that was still eight or nine months before January 6, 2021, but to show what was happening then was part of a, of a continuum, a part of a trajectory weaponized by social media. And then, of course, when we're in the middle of writing this book, the January 6th attack on the Capitol occurs, it just gave the book, you know, added um, significance and relevance. So you mentioned you started off back in the 80s. I'd be interested in hearing sort of your comparisons of the threat environment back in the 80s versus now. Is one of the main differences you cited with social media and obviously the online space, is that one of the primary drivers of the threat environment that we're seeing now? Or are there other uh, underlying factors that people should also be recognizing as well? Well, I mean, there's other underlying factors. I think social media is, has empowered it and it's enabled it to have a reach that people, you know, white supremacists, anti-government extremists, racists and anti-Semites, and the list of things they're opposed to back in the 1980s could only dream of. It's important, though, to note that this was a movement that was, all, that was always enormously innovative. That, in fact, two of, I think, the most important trends in terrorism that we see in the 21st century originated with this group, with these groups in the 1980s. And that was, firstly, the use of computers as a means of communication, recruitment, radicalization, and propaganda. Uh, Someone named Louis Beam, who was a Vietnam veteran, uh, was the grand dragon of the Texas Ku Klux Klan, and then the ambassador at large for the Aryan Nations, which was trying to function as an umbrella group linking together this disparate collection and geographically diverse collection of racist anti-Semites, uh, anti-federalists, tax militant tax resistors, uh, Christian patriots, z- extremely zealous advocates of Second Amendment rights. It tried to link them together, and he came up with this idea of the Liberty Net, which at a time when computers basically could only communicate through modems and very slowly. You couldn't upload images. You couldn't upload any kind of uh, uh, voice activation. I mean, it was basically just text, and it was communicated very, very slowly on modems that had like 80 baud. Um, It was basically you'd see a letter appear each second, almost like you were typing it. But Beam had this idea of using computers at a time when no no government agencies had computers, when... Computers were also very expensive for the average person to buy. The price has come down over these as a way to obviate surveillance and wiretaps or infiltration of meetings by hooking people together online. Well, of course, the 21st century groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS have definitely capitalized on that. The second innovation uh, that he pioneered in the early 1980s was uh, what what he called leaderless resistance or autonomous phantom cells, what today we call lone wolf attacks. The idea being that a terrorist group with the stereotypical hierarchy and command and control structure was vulnerable to infiltration. And with infiltration, attacks could be prevented. So Beam argued that lone individuals should take matters into their own hands. And of course, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing in April 1995 is the exemplar of that. So those are the trends that were being um, promulgated 
or disseminated, but it had very narrow reach. It was mm. basically people who could afford to buy what were very expensive desktop computers. I mean, computers back then had a 48K memory. That's probably one letter on a PowerPoint slide today. And it was very primitive, but it was very innovative as well, but it just didn't have a wide reach. Social media has really changed all of that. Yeah, and I like the idea of sort of diving into some of those ideologies, especially like more recent ideologies. You stated in your article that far-right violence today is increasingly fueled by a deadly combination of ideology and strategy imported from the United States. One of the ideologies you highlight is white replacement theory. So if you could tell me about that ideology and also how it's become so pervasive in the United States and also internationally. Well, immigration has always been a third rail political issue. I mean, going back to the 1924 Immigration Act, which restricted immigration basically from Jews from Southeastern or Eastern Europe, Catholics from Southern Europe, and all Asians. And that wasn't repealed until the 1960s. I mean, it stayed in place for 40 years. That, I mean, this kind of legislation, you know, underscores how immigration is a very sensitive issue in the United States. And the Great Replacement Theory, which is actually a French philosophy, it was applied to the United States that, again, this conspiratorial cabal of Jews, progressives, bankers, others are trying to import immigrants to overrun a country with persons of color, persons of a non-Christian religion, and basically to take over the political system. And that has certainly gained traction in the United States, especially as illegal immigration has increased as a problem in this country. And you see it manifested in the Tree of Life synagogue shooting where um, Robert Bowers believed that Jewish organizations were welcoming immigrants and bringing immigrants. Certainly the Patrick crisis and the Walmart shooting um, in El Paso, Texas, a couple of years later, which was directed against people from Latin America. And also in the, in the shootings at the supermarket in Buffalo, New York in 2021 by a white supremacist against African-Americans. That, I mean, the fact is that the demographics of the United States are changing and that the United States, will, that Caucasians will not be the dominant race, that they will be um, because of um, immigration and because of the indigenous peoples who were here, that, that non-white peoples will be the dominant demographic. And some people on the extremes just are not willing not only not to tolerate it but are willing to try to use violence to 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 stop it and you mentioned these demographic changes especially in the last few years do you think that's one of the key underlying factors for why white replacement theory has been sort of pushed into the mainstream or are there also other things that we're not seeing as well well, I mean, that's, there's lots of uh, different things. I mean, this is a movement that's always aspired to be a big tent, and that always went beyond racism, anti-Semitism, uh, hatred of people from Asia and from other places, anti-Catholicism to an extent as well, to try to cast a bigger net. So they've tried to seize on contentious issues in the American political system, like immigration, for example. Uh, like welfare, for instance, as an attempt to gather more supporters. I mean, this is one reason why they fashioned, uh, fastened on um, 
Second Amendment rights as a means to bring in even another constituency. People who are opposed to paying taxes, for example, and they come up with all sorts of quack legal remedies that enable people to avoid paying income tax. Uh, people who are against the federal government. I mean, it goes back to the Civil War that believed not just that states' rights predominate, but that local rights, that the county sheriff was the only legitimate authority. So it's very extreme views that have woven together to create a much more powerful, but not necessarily at all cohesive movement, but a more powerful one in that 20, 30 years ago, it was much more challenging to find like-minded extremists like yourself. Now, or if you did, it was in the ones and twos or maybe the tens at the most. Now on social media, it's possible to reach you know, tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who may share at least some of your view and then to it, their purpose is to attempt to um, recruit them or get them to adopt uh, an overall uh, view that's much more in line with their extremist positions. Yeah, and I, I like how you sort of characterize how all these domestic extremists are sort of interwoven with various different ideologies that may share the perspective of being anti-government. I'm wondering if you could talk to me about how should we best characterize and like categorize all these different groups? Well, the U.S. Constitution, of course, protects extremists and extremist uh, ideologies and thought. It's when they cross the line into violence. And that's why in the book, I mean, we use the term repeatedly, uh, violent far-right extremists, <laughs> that it's fine to be far-right, it's fine to be an extremist. It's when the violence is introduced. But that's, I mean, you're right, because it's a very vague and all-encompassing term, but because the movement is so diverse... What they do have in common is the commitment to violence. And, you know, when it comes down to it, sedition is violence. And that's why, you know, 22 of the people involved in uh, the January 6th events were convicted of seditious conspiracy, which is one of the most serious charges in the United States. And sort of moving on to, in, in your article, you mentioned a few examples of how multiple state adversaries have actually been exploiting extremism within the United States. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about how the United States' state adversaries have capitalized on basically a perceived American weakness of having a lot of extremism within the United States right now. Well, I think state adversaries that oppose freedom in essence, but oppose our Western liberal with a small L democratic values have seized upon the divisiveness and polarization that exists in many Western countries, the United States included. And they've tried to sow those divides and enhance them and basically rip the fabric of, of trust that underpins society. And trust is in that people can have diverse viewpoints, but that they won't use violence to uh, coerce others to adopt them. So any number of, of states that wish the United States ill um, and who were very active in the disinformation front, even influencing elections, for example, through bots, through social media, and so on, you know, see these groups, but also groups on the far left, too, and sometimes in false flag operations of sowing greater discord. But, you know, members of the Russian imperial movement, for example, which is now being designated by the Department of State as a specially designated terrorist entity, which is 
just one step below a, a foreign terrorist organization designation, sent representatives to the Charlottesville 2017 Unite the Right rally. So you can see that this isn't something that's just positive, that we see extremists from other countries taking an interest in what violent extremists in this country are engaged in. And I like how, so you touched previously on basically how the online environment, specifically with social media and other internet forums, has really sped up the radicalization and spread of these ideologies. Tell me more about how social media impacts the extremist ideology environment right now. Are there any recommendations that you might have to at least slow down the spread of these ideologies or prevent further radicalization online? Well, they've since certainly tried to influence elections. They've certainly created false organizations or created events, demonstrations, marches, or rallies by groups that don't really exist but strike a responsive chord because of their contentious elements in U.S. politics right now, um, which is, uh, you know, is a problem that we're going to see, especially in the lead-up to the 2024 presidential election. I think the problem is almost all the big tech companies have cut back on their moderators. So there's more of an environment where I think hostile states feel that they can get away with doing these things and will not be caught by the U.S. Uh, by the U.S. tech companies that run most of these uh, platforms. I mean, I, I, as we advocate in the book, one of the biggest chapters is on policy recommendations, that we break those down into three buckets. Things that can be done now that will have immediate effects, things that can be done now that will have effects in three to five years and things that we could start doing that will have long-term effects and will result in a generational change where perhaps people will be less susceptible to these conspiracy theories and less amenable to uh, extremist positions. But I think one of the keys is we really have not made an effort in this country to discuss, discuss and debate, really, the power that social media has and the malignant influence it can have on society. Now, Britain already in 2018 um, issued its online harms white paper, which sought to stake out the responsibility of government to protect its citizens at all different levels, from bullying up to terrorism. Uh, that occurs in the digital space. I mean, we're nowhere close to ha- even having that discussion in the United States. There's been some discussion, but not much action, on reforming Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which exempted social media from the same sorts of restrictions and guidance that we apply to mainstream media, fairness doctrine, for, for example, uh, fact-checking, things like that. But Congress is, I mean, a very heavily divided Congress. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to think that they would tackle this, but that's where I think the solution lies. As we're on the topic of social media, do you think the solutions should be the same or different when we're talking about like mainstream social media platforms such as, you know, Meta, which owns Facebook, Twitter, those types of platforms versus some of the, I've heard people say alternative platforms that are a bit more friendly towards extremists, like stuff like Telegram, maybe 
gab some of those other sort of specialized platforms. Do you well, think the solutions are the, should no, be the same or different? No, the solutions should be the same. The problem is, you know, platforms like Telegram, for example, don't exist in the United States or so aren't subject to U.S. law. That's, that's the problem. So mm -hmm. um, the protections that we, the, even the, the protections that we have in the United States against these things are completely obviated when, there are, when the platforms are based overseas. And I think, you know, these, these tech platforms don't realize the impact that it has on ordinary persons' lives who may be harassed, vilified, victimized, demonized, targeted, that these are real-world effects that they're oblivious to. They're just in it to make money and to sell more ads and to have their algorithms attract more like-minded people, which to me is irresponsible because words matter and we're losing sight of what the truth is. Yeah. Just sort of backtracking a little bit, if you were to give the U.S. government recommendations for how to prevent the spread of domestic extremism a few years ago, let's say it was back in the mid-2010s, how do you think the U.S. government could have or should have responded then? And how different do you think, if they uh, garnered yeah. better responses, how different do you think our situation with domestic extremism would be right now? Well, I mean, the problem is, you know, most people in government are older and they don't understand social media, they don't understand computers. You only, you cringe when you listen, when you listen to some of the questions that senators in particular tend to be skew older than members of Congress. But both pose questions to people and they just don't understand how these platforms work. So I think you know, we just forget that extremists and terrorists are always revolutionary by definition. They're always about change, and they're always very keen and eager to seize upon technological developments that make the promulgation of their extremism easier. So we should have understood that, I mean, I remember very clearly in the 1990s that the Internet was sold as being this engine of enlightenment that would level the playing field and expose everyone to the same core truths. But we've seen the, the Internet has become immensely useful purveying the most coarse and uh, untruthful conspiracy theories and vilifications of peoples and so, and so on. It was the same with social media. I mean, we're just oblivious to its more malignant aspects. And I don't understand why we had in place laws that governed traditional media from the 1920s onwards, but we've been oblivious to what happens with social media and uh, with digital platforms. Yeah, and one solution that you and Jacob Ware actually mentioned in your guys' article is you actually suggest a domestic terrorism law to formally criminalize plots and violence targeting individuals on the basis of, you list a few protected categories. Why do you think this law specifically is essential to mitigate the domestic terrorism threat? Because, uh, I mean, the social media platforms and titans have no interest in cutting off sources of revenue. And I think they've already proven themselves incapable of pol policing themselves. So I think there needs to be domestic legislation that would enforce it. And do you differentiate? So one, one of the other aspects of this law as well that you mentioned in your article was material support for domestic terrorist organizations. So basically, if a organization was 
involved in plotting violence towards protected individuals, they should be sanctioned in the same way as like foreign terrorist organizations would. How would that impact social media and the ideologies that are spreading on social media platforms and in online spaces? Well, it gives government the power to shut down, but that, that power when it crosses the line into violence already exists, and that's yeah. the fundamental issue. I think that a domestic terrorism law is needed basically to more effective counter, effectively counter terrorism. I mean, people are tried under different statutes for acts that are clearly terrorist, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I'm not necessarily in favor of designating domestic terrorist groups. I think that's uh, a road that I would not want to go down because it's too political and too contentious. But we've always defined terrorism by the nature of the act, and it's the same reason that we have hate crimes. I mean, that duplicates, in essence, murder, arson, vandalism, harassment, assault and battery, and so on. But it indicates society's, it puts society's imprimatur on those crimes as saying that these are crimes that are even worse because they're racially, religiously, gender, uh, or ethnically motivated. And I think we need that same kind of additional opprobrium and additional, additional societal censure of terrorism because terrorism is where the violence is involved and it actually affects people's lives and well-being. I want to dive into this further as well because in my terrorism counterterrorism class, we actually talked about like the current legal frameworks for combating domestic terrorism versus foreign terrorist organizations. And some people might say that current legal frameworks are adequate to mitigate the threat of domestic extremism. Why do you think the current legal frameworks aren't adequate? There's no terrorism statute. So, for instance, Christopher Hassan, who plotted to assassinate uh, leading Democratic members of Congress and also prominent people in the media and, and assembled a small arsenal to do so, was convicted of weapons charges and using weapons while uh, weapons and narcotics because he had anabolic steroids. Um, we should be calling these crimes what they are, which is terrorism. Judges already use terrorism enhancement statutes, but that's very subjective. That's up to the judge. So we're kind of want it both ways. I think there should be a law that spells it out clearly and that also mandates sentences. I mean, people who are convicted of providing material, uh, material support to ISIS, for example, you know, get on average 13.2 years in prison, whereas we see other domestic terrorists and extremists getting much shorter sentences. In some, some cases, if the terrorism enhancement laws are applied, it can be similar. But again, that's up to this is the subjectivity of a judge. These should be laws that are equitably and evenly applied. That totally makes sense. And I think, so you, you got to the equitable point. I think in your article, you also mentioned that it would send a strong message to domestic terrorists do you think it would also have an impact on isolating funding for these groups? I don't have a clear picture of how a lot of domestic extremist groups are funded and what their sources of revenue are. But of course, you know, terrorists can't exist without, without money, without funds to pay for safe houses, to buy weapons, um, you know, to, especially people who are engaged in terrorism full time still need to put food on their table. 
So it's an enormously powerful weapon. I just don't have a good sense of the financial dynamics of domestic terrorism groups. I'm not sure anyone does. I mean, after all, terrorism is not an expensive vocation to engage in. But this would be another useful tool that it also would dry up the finances of groups. It certainly would prevent foreign contributions from coming in. You mentioned previously the divided Congress right now would obviously be a complicating factor in passing a domestic terrorism law. Could you foresee any other complicating factors in passing a domestic terrorism law? Are there any other safeguards that would be needed to ensure that the law isn't politicized or used right. for unintended purposes as well. Well, that's one of the main arguments against it. Many terrorism scholars don't think it's a good idea. They argue we already have statutes in place, which is true, but then why do we need hate crimes legislation? Again, it's this societal imprimatur that I think is very important. And it's to ensure that people are sentenced consistently, that if, you know, why is it that people who provide support to ISIS get longer sentences than those who provide support to domestic groups? But there is a concern that it could be politicized against uh, president's enemies. But I think that's why we have congressional oversight. That's why we have sunset clauses. It, perhaps the legislation would have to be renewed annually, for example, and then have to be a debate how it's been used and if it's been used in the way that Congress envisions. So I think there's plenty of safety nets that can be put in place uh, that the argument that, it's, that it could be misused, I mean, any law can be misused. Of course. And I want to loop back to the prevalence of extremist ideologies in mainstream discourse, including at times from policymakers. Do you think that as these ideologies creep into the discourse of policymakers, is there an effective way to isolate these ideologies from the mainstream and make them less appealing to Americans that are vulnerable to radicalization? Well, that's the problem on both on politicians on both sides now give voice to sentiments that would be unacceptable at any other time and that can be interpreted as uh, as meaning things that they didn't intend but used to justify extremist positions so uh, I just I just think it's we're in a different world where politicians have gone outside of what was once the boundaries of respectful discourse and sometimes have advocated violence against uh, witnesses testifying before Senate hearings or even against one another. We talked uh, previously about the relationship between the various domestic extremist ideologies. How would you characterize the relationship between the domestic sort of racism and anti-Semitic ideologies within the United States and the jihadist ideologies spouted by foreign terrorist organizations. Are there close relationships between the two or should these be sort of seen as very separate categories of threats? Well, the jihad ones generally have a pretend or at least purport to have a religious basis. Uh, whereas that was more the case of domestic white supremacism in the 1980s where there was a religious element. It's much less prevalent today. I'd say today what, what unites them is hatred of, of Israel and anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jews. So the anti-Semitism aspect is sort of the uniting force behind 
both domestic and foreign terrorist ideologies, or is it specifically Israel as a state? No, it's. What I mean, it's say? no, it's Israel as a state. It's definitely anti-Semitism, hatred of the Jews, but it's also hatred of democracy, hatred of the liberalism that protects minorities in our society, that gives everyone equal rights. I mean, all those things are anathema to all extremists, but particularly the white supremacists and jihadists. I mean, they both argue for totalitarian, authoritarian societies. How vulnerable do you think Americans are to radicalization now? And what factors do you think make Americans more or less vulnerable to radicalization at very various different points in U.S. history? Well, polls in recent years have repeatedly shown that somewhere between you know, 28 to, to, to 33% of Americans astonishingly believe that in certain circumstances violence could be justified against the U.S. government. I mean, the answer is, in a democracy, violence can never be justified against the government. So that shows the divisiveness and polarization that has hardened both extremes, whereas they believe the system is so corrupt that they can't have a voice and that therefore they have to resort to violence. And that's, I think, a very dangerous development. And do you think that the distrust in U.S. government, U.S. government institutions right now is at like a particularly high level? Obviously, the media always talks about political polarization recently, but if there are also historical precedents for what we're going through right now. Well, yes. I mean, before the Civil War in the 1920s and the 1930s, for for instance, I think the 1960s. I mean, yeah, there have been these this types these types of divisions and centrifugal forces, but they didn't have social media that was like driving the extremism at a much faster pace and reaching much broader audiences. Just sort of going a little bit more general, um, in the next, let's say, three to five years, what do you think is particularly important for Americans to continue thinking about or tracking in the next few years? Well, Ronald Reagan said that, you know, our freedoms are just a generation away of being taken away, that that's something we have to guard. And I think we have to understand that, that the price of polarization and divisiveness does lead to at least justifications for violence and threatens the cohesion of what has made the United States great and what has enabled the United States to be admired and respected by many other countries. I mean, we're, we're, we're forfeiting what many people turn to us as an example, and we're becoming, as we, in many cases, we appear as dysfunctional as younger countries or countries that, that uh, have very different constellation of political factors than we do. I think that's a great way to slide into concluding remarks. Is there anything else that you think is really important for all of our listeners to know about domestic terrorism? I think so many commentators have pointed to the fact that, you know, our greatest enemy may be ourselves and that in recent years the the, the fabric of trust that has really uh, been woven in the United States you know, from our founding that is frayed at times, especially during the American Civil War in the middle of the, ni- of the uh, 19th century. But it's always held together. I think that we're in uncharted territory with the power of social media, with distrust in government higher 
than ever where people are confused about what the truth is, that everybody has their own facts now. I mean, all that's very dangerous and I think undermines the foundations of our democracy and of, uh, of really the social cohesion that any nation state has to maintain in order to survive. Thank you so much, Professor Hoffman, for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. This is the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review. If you would like to find Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware's latest book, Columbia University Press is expecting to publish God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America in January of 2024. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you for listening to the Precision Guided Podcast. Follow the Georgetown Security Studies Review on social media to stay up to date on the latest Precision Guided Podcast episodes and GSSR content. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at georgetownsecuritystudiesreview.org.